the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. I'm handing over the reins of the podcast this week to our law and insurance reporter, David Osler, because he's been out and about recently having a series of conversations that we thought you might be interested in. Specifically, he's been in Naples for the annual gathering of shipping lawyers who, let's face it, are not known for slumming it. But even by their standards, the Shipping and Law Conference, which celebrated its 10th anniversary this year, is a rather special occasion. Each year, the organisers seek out rather glorious locations from among the city's historic buildings and discuss the finer points of maritime law in Renaissance churches or minor palaces adorned with Caravaggio frescoes. It's alright for some. Uh, I mention this partly out of jealousy, but also to explain the rather echoey sound quality in this week's edition. Uh, it seems the Loiseless microphone doesn't have a setting for Plantagenet-era baronial hall. The first to speak is Mans Jakobsen, the now-retired former director of the International Oil Pollution Compensation Funds, who is not just a trained lawyer, but also worked as a judge prior to taking the IOPC job. Mans gave a, a really interesting presentation on how shipping law is going to have to be rewritten to take account of autonomous vessels and unmanned ships. I think there are a number of, of course, a lot of technical problems as well, and of safety problems. But from a purely legal point, although in most international conventions and other codes, there is nothing said specifically that there should be a crew and a master on board. But they have all been drafted on the assumption that there is. So when now we have these new creatures without a crew on board, you have to look at some of the provisions that we have in present it is make no sense at all. For example, the convention on watch keeping, uh, there is nobody who can keep watch. Okay. So one has then to probably go through every provision in the relevant convention and see whether they make sense, whether they have to be adapted uh, slightly or whether they have, they have to be more, for, more fundamental amendments. Right, but that's going to be a big job, obviously, and you suggested several ways, in fact, that we could go about doing this? Well, I think that the, the competent committees of IMO have started looking at this, and they go through provision by provision. And I think that probably the traditional way of doing it is then to amend every provision that where it's necessary or advisable to do it. Fortunately, many of these provisions are technical, and... Uh, the technical provisions in IMO treaties can, to a large extent, be amended through what is called a tacit acceptance procedure, which means that they can be adopted by majority decision of the relevant committee. And then once that comes into force, it comes into force for everyone, which is a great advantage for uniformity of shipping law. And that would be your favorite solution? Well, I think it's the only practical solution. Because the, theoretically, one could draft a special convention only dealing with with um, uh, this kind of uh, unmanned craft, but that would I don't think you will in the foreseeable future ever get agreement on such a treaty in IMO. Okay, but, but how long might it take? Uh, is this a it would take many years. Take many years. How many years would you guess? I have no idea. But then there are, of course, also worse because there are provisions that cannot be amended by this test acceptance procedure. But we'll have to go through a diplomatic conference followed by ratification of national parliaments, uh, which of course also means that it will take a large number of years before the new provisions will get anything near 
a universal application. Well, it sounds like a lot of work for a lot of lawyers. So, uh, Mans Jacobson, uh, thank you very much. Dave also spoke to Tija Smith, a solicitor who now works as the Deputy Director of Freight Demurrage and Defence at North Group. Tija had words of warning for ship owners who might find themselves in inadvertent non-compliance with IMO sulphur cap in less than three months' time. And with me I have Tija Smith, who's Deputy Director of FD&D at North P&I, who gave a presentation on legal aspects of the sulphur cap. Um, and she warned of the dangers that some ship owners could find themselves in inadvertent non-compliance. So, Tija, how could that happen? So, there are a number of ways that a ship owner might find themselves in in that kind of situation. So, it it, it may be that there's been a machinery failure on board. Perhaps a, a valve has broken and high sulphur fuel contaminates with the very low sulphur fuel oil. That would probably be a rare case, though. Um, the more likely case will be where compliant fuel isn't available. So, despite best efforts and good passage planning having been carried out. Um, if there isn't compliant fuel available, then uh, the vessel could find itself in a situation where it has to take on board compliant fuel. But whatever the reason for the inadvertent non-compliant situation, it will be so important, very important for the, the master, the owner, to report that straight away. Right, uh, I was going to say, yeah. what, what could be the consequences for inadvertent Well, the con How much trouble could um, yeah. the ship find itself in? There could be quite a lot of trouble, depending on the circumstances and depending on, on the port state control looking at the situation, um, because there will be different approaches by different port state control. But the more likely consequences are fine, but it may be that there could be an order to discharge uh, non-compliant fuel, um, there could be a detention of the vessel, there could even be criminal sanctions, although that's more likely only to occur where there's been willful non-compliance, where that, that's been done on purpose. But in an inadvertent, inadvertent non-compliance situation, there's more likely to be a fine. But then again, there might not be any action taken, especially where uh, there isn't compliant fuel available. So in that situation, an owner could submit a fuel oil non-availability report, a phonar, but that's only something to be used in very rare cases. Okay, well, I mean, yeah. just in general, what's yeah. the... Uh Obviously, the best way of avoiding trouble is not getting into it in the first place. What, what, what can ship owners do? Absolutely. Well, passage planning is going to be very important. Right. Um, preparing as far as possible, looking ahead, um, taking a, a, an assessment, carrying out an assessment of the the vessels, the engine requirements, speaking to engine manufacturers about how they might need to manage the new fuels that are being used. They will have different viscosity characteristics and different cold, cold flow properties which will need to be managed differently. So it's, it's really about trying to plan ahead. Unfortunately, there will be some situations where um, whatever the owner does, they, they perhaps won't be able to comply. In every situation, 
record keeping is going to be key. So absolutely every ship owner should should be keeping good records because these are the things that will be taken into account by um, authorities when considering whether or not to carry out enforcement action. And the last resort then, your FD&D insurance? Well, FD&D insurance will, uh, will probably be uh, something to look to um, in a lot of the, the scenarios that we might be looking at. Um, Unfortunately, I do think there will be problems. Most of these will probably be of a commercial nature. Um, so then, yes, you're, you're looking at FD&D insurance. If, if you have it, not everybody does. Make yeah. sure you get it then too. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. James Liebeter, QC, brought the Continental audience up to speed with Brexit. Whether you're for or against Britain's departure from the EU, the reassuring news is that there will be little impact on the primacy of English law and shipping contracts. Well, English uh, law is the predominant uh, choice of law for shipping contracts throughout the world and nothing that happens in Brexit, whether there's deal or no deal, will undermine the uh, efficacy of English law contracts or um, the commercial um, imperatives which make English law a good choice for shipping uh, parties. But you can litigate in English law elsewhere, can't you, in several former colonial countries? Will London hang on to its edge? Yeah, at the moment London has uh, as an arbitration centre the vast majority of uh, shipping disputes. Certainly nothing in relation to Brexit will undermine that because arbitration law is independent of uh, European Union law and uh, arbitration awards are enforced under the New York Convention and all of that will remain completely unchanged. So at the moment there's no reason to think that English won't, uh, that London won't uh, maintain its preeminent position as a place to arbitrate disputes. Any downsides from a shipping law point of view, especially in the event of a no-deal Brexit? I think in the, in the event of a no-deal Brexit there would undoubtedly be uh, legal disputes which arise in relation to the impact of English substantive law on vessels which come into English waters or are otherwise subject to English law. Uh, so there will undoubtedly be uh, significant complications if we leave in a chaotic way. Right. Would we, or would the EU be able to enforce EU judgments in the UK? Well, uh, th that remains to be seen, although I think most people think that uh, judgments given by competent member state courts will in the end be en enforceable as a matter of common law, e even if we haven't done anything to uh, rectify the situation, for example, by signing up to the Lugano Convention. James Levy to QC, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, Shipping and Law also featured a few bootleg speakers from outside the industry. Uh, one of the guests this year was Hamish McRae, one of Britain's best-known economic journalists. Dave called up with him and uh, asked him what impressions he had formed of shipping and uh, whether he had any advice for us. Well, I think, I think there are three stories going on. Story one is there is an economic cycle. Um, however much we pretend we can get away from it, I don't think we have to accept that. So my own view is that we will fairly soon, maybe already, be heading into some sort of downturn. I don't think it'll be a particularly serious downturn, but it will be a downturn. And I think that the pull-up will be quite slow and difficult for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that uh, the world has been flooded with cheap money and how do you dig your way out of that? Um, a lot of debts. The second story, which will continue, will be the shift of the balance of the world economy to Asia, to China and India. Um, Europe and the US will, after a dip, keep growing, 
but we will not grow as fast as China and India. I know China growth coming off a bit with a trade war, but I think that's, that, 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 that we have to accept the developed world will grow more slowly than the emerging world. And the third story really is how does the whole technology boom play out? I think we've coming to the end of the most disruptive phase of that. Um, I think there'll be a pause now, a bit of pushback against Facebook and YouTube and uh, pushback against uh, Uber and so on. So I think that dis levels of disruption of our, our world will go down. Um, but we should be aware there are other technologies, most notably artificial intelligence, that are biting away uh, at the edges and will actually move forward very quickly over the next 10 years. Great. And as I mentioned in the introduction, you're an outsider to the industry. You've just spent the last three hours listening to industry concerns. Um, what are your impressions of what we do and what would be your advice for the shipping industry? Well, I think most people don't realise just how extraordinarily important shipping is. They don't realise that uh, if they, uh, I don't know, they, they buy, uh, if they're environmentally careful and they want to buy a Tesla, uh, actually somebody's shipped that across the sea to get it to them. Uh, and uh, without shipping, you wouldn't have one. Uh, so I think that people don't understand its importance. But the second thing I think they don't understand is its romance. The size of these ships, the complexity of them, the, the technology that is used to get them around the world, the conditions they sometimes have to face. You know, even if you've got 300,000 tons, you get thrown around a lot <laughs> in a storm. And I, I think that that's something which I would love to see the industry find ways of getting over to people um, just not how, impor how important they are, but also just the romance and competence and skills of all the people in it. Great. Hamish McCray, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for the Lloyd's List podcast this week. We're going to be back in London next week after a few international episodes, but rest assured we will be covering all the story shaping shipping on Lloyd's List.com. Thank you very much for listening and see you next week.